Right? Yes, we do. Maybe I'll get on this okay, side. Okay, you go on that side. Yes. Okay, our question is, I have confessed my sins to God as I've been told to do, and yet I find no peace, and I struggle to believe that God has forgiven me. I feel as if God will still reject me. Hmm. I, I can understand that question. Um, but um, when, we, when we operate in the spiritual world, can we rely on our feelings to be the guide for what is true and what is not? Generally, no, because our feelings are impacted by so many things. Did you know that there is a very significant nerve that goes from your, your gut to your brain? I believe it. <laughs> you know this because as soon as you have a, um, you know, if you have like some gastrointestinal problem, um, then your brain just doesn't work as well. And, uh, and so lots of things impact our emotions. What you ate, um, the, the fight you had with your spouse, right? The um, getting a present or somebody giving you flowers or eating chocolate, lots of things impact your emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, so our emotions aren't really the best guide for what's true and what's not. Okay. So here's what we need to do. We need to go to God's word and we need to look at the promises. First John 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess, and this, the question is, I've confessed like God's told me to. If we confess, then. And what's the promise? He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So do I necessarily feel cleansed when I confess my sins? Probably not, especially if you were really good and immediately following have your, your moment of sin, you said, oh, I'm so sorry, Lord, please forgive me. That was stupid. I did it again. Please forgive me. And you feel dirty. You feel like you messed up. But God says in heaven, you've been washed by the blood of Jesus and you've been forgiven. And that's all sin is, is under that um, category of being able to be forgiven. What God asks us to do is to respond in faith and to say, God, I don't feel it, but I believe it. Um, you can find in 1 John 5, 3, um, that God makes a distinction here. He says, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. It's not that you may feel that you have eternal life. It's that you may know you have eternal life. And that knowing is because God has revealed it, not because we have felt it. Ladies, you have a legendary intuition. But about spiritual things, you cannot rely on your intuition. You must rely on this is what God says. Otherwise, you can end up in all kinds of strange places. So you don't feel about salvation you know because God says. Um, so if you've faithfully confessed your sin, um, there, there's a word called repentance. And, and we're going to talk a little bit more about the whole sin thing on another night when we get to the subject um, uh, from Revelation 14. We're going to talk about our minds. And we're going to face this issue of what do we do when we're dealing with sin, and especially when it just keeps coming back. And you know how, how it is. You keep doing something you know you shouldn't. Um, and, and we're going to talk about that. What does that look like, and what is God's plan, and how can we live a better life that doesn't include all of that? Um, and we're going to explore this concept of repentance, but the simple idea is if you're heading the wrong direction, mm-hmm. um, when, when you confess your sin, you say, God, I'm heading the wrong direction, mm-hmm. and then repentance is, is to turn towards God. So confession is, is this I'm going the wrong direction, I admit it, and I'm going to go back towards God. Not that you're the wrong direction, sorry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh, and we'll, we'll explore that in more detail on another night, but I just, just wanted to point that out. It's not that we don't turn to God. Um, confession isn't just this thing we do, you know, we sin, we confess, we sin, we confess, and it doesn't really matter if we sin, we just confess and we're good. There is a call that God gives us to turn to Him and follow Him. Um, and, uh, but, but when you confess, the promise is he is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse from all unrighteousness. And we can, by faith, completely rest and trust in God's forgiveness. Amen. So thank you. Thank you, Brent. Appreciate, um, your introduction. Uh, before we get into the topics for tonight, you might've noticed that there's an envelope 
on the chair you're sitting on or beside you if you've moved it already. Um, I, there's a few people that have asked me, how can we give a donation? And I just want to say, this is a free event. You do not need to give any money to be here. Um, it's uh, provided by donations. Uh, but if you wanted to help defray some of the costs, um, then you can just put some cash or put a check to Discovery Centers um, in there and, and, and drop it in the question box. And if you want to take that home, you can. Uh, Any time is fine. No pressure. And just so you know, I don't make any money. If you give a donation, I, I, I do make money. I don't make any money from your donations. If you give a donation, it goes completely to defray the costs of the event. So anyway, I just wanted to give that opportunity to you. So tonight... Um, we're going to deal with a, a really cool subject from Daniel chapter 8. And uh, we're going to find tonight that there's some comparisons between Daniel 2 and Daniel 8. Even a little bit, we're going to look at Daniel 7, just a tiny bit. Um, but it's such a big topic that we're not going to be able to cover it in one night. So tomorrow night, we're going to kind of get the tail end of that. And, and we're going to well, we're going to do what we keep talking about doing and keep trying to do each night, and that's comparing one part of the Bible with another part to get the answers and letting the Bible explain itself. So on Saturday night, we'll, we'll finish that study, and we'll look at, at um, two chapters in the book of Daniel, and I think you're going to be excited about where we end up there. Um, so Saturday night, I'm sorry, Sunday night rather, um, we're going to highlight a, uh, the second coming of uh, Jesus in Bible prophecy. And I think you're going to enjoy exploring this. But we're not going to deal in, um, you know, like opinions or theories. We're going to deal in certainties, five certainties that you can find from God's Word, things that you can uh, guarantee, yes, that is what God said. So that's Sunday night. And just a, a reminder, on, on Sunday, we're not going to be here uh, we were here for a week, and uh, because of rental plans and whatnot, we we're going to move up to the Cornerstone Christian School gym, and it'll be a nice, comfortable place. So um, come there Sunday night, uh, 7 o'clock, same time, and we'll do the appearing. On Monday, we're off, but on Tuesday, again, up at Cornerstone, we're going to be uh, doing the anatomy of evil. And the, the big question of the world to Christians is, if you say your God is so loving... If you say your God is so good, then why does He allow evil? I mean, you can explain evil from an evolutionary humanistic perspective, uh, but how do you explain it from a good God-creator perspective? And Revelation 12 gives us a story, and we're going to take Revelation 12 and compare it with some other parts of the Bible, as we do here, and we're going to explore where this whole evil thing came from um, and, and how that all works. So then that's uh, Tuesday night. Wednesday night, we're going to look at uh, the ultimate mind game. And that's where we're going we're gonna to explore this idea of, of sin a bit more. Because Revelation 14 talks about a group of people who follow the Lamb wherever He goes and have the Father's name in their forehead. And we're going to look at what, is, what does that mean, that forehead in Bible prophecy. And we're going to kind of lay the foundation from, for some other things that prophecy describes. And I think that's going to have some personal um, importance, personal value as you explore the whole issue of sin. Like when God says don't and you do, and when God says do and you don't, um, how do we respond to that? So that's Wednesday night. On Thursday night, we're off next week. Friday night, again at Cornerstone School the coming of the lawless, uh, the lawless one. This is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're going to look at a prophecy that predates Revelation, but points to the Antichrist of Revelation. And so we're going to kind of lay the groundwork for what uh, this, this sinister creature, uh, sinister person in Revelation. And we'll find that uh, as we go to Revelation to look at that story, 2 Thessalonians is going to be really helpful to understanding what Revelation says. So that's Friday night at 7 o'clock at the Cornerstone uh, School. On Saturday night, we're going to look at Revelation's sign of God. There is something that the, the Bible describes as a sign for God's people. When He comes, most of the planet is going to find out about this special sign, and we're going to explore this from Revelation 14. And it's God's people have a message. The, whoever's following Jesus at the end of time have a special message that Revelation 14 describes going to all the world. And so we're going to look at that message on uh, Saturday night. And then on Sunday night, 
Um, I'm, I'm not following along, am I? On Sunday night, Revelation's Forgotten History. Um, so Revelation's Forgotten History is a, well, there's a passage in the Bible, well, at least that most people are sure is in the Bible. And we're going to ask the question, is it there? And we're going to go looking and we're going we're to try to find an answer to this question that people think is in the Bible. And the thing is, if it's not in the Bible, we got some grappling to do, some thinking to do, um, because sometimes we hold ideas because of tradition or culture or just personal uh, preference or whatever that don't necessarily match up with the Bible. So Sunday night, we're going to face one of those things that um, is going to be, I think, an interesting subject. So tonight, um, the time of the end, the first part, and let's begin with prayer. Father in heaven, we are coming to your word because we want to know who you are. Please reveal yourself to us tonight. It's obvious that Bible prophecy isn't just about information. It's not just about um, interesting creatures and strange beasts. It's about you. And so we want to know you as we explore prophecy. Uh, Please forgive my sins, purify my heart, and let my lips be capable of speaking the truth about you. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So tonight, I'd like to start with a bit of review. This was Daniel chapter 2. We talked about it the first night we met a week ago. Thank you for sticking with me, by the way. This is our sixth presentation, and uh, I think I've been having fun. I don't know about you, but thanks for hanging around. So um, if you were here on uh, on Friday night last week, um, what was that head of gold? It represented the kingdom of Babylon ruled by Nebuchadnezzar. Excellent. And uh, so Babylon is the head of gold. What about the chests and arms of silver? Medo-Persia. So the kingdom that overthrew Babylon is Medo-Persia. And then um, how about the, the belly and thighs of brass? What nation did that represent? Greece. Very good. And the legs, what did that represent? Rome, or according to um, Edward Gibbon, the iron monarchy of Rome. And what about those, uh, those feet of iron and clay? What did that represent? Yeah, the, the nations that couldn't unify, the, the Rome divided into to these nations that would never cling one to another again, right? That was what Daniel 2 was talking about. Okay, so just uh, by a show of hands, how many, have got, how many of you got them all right? <laughs> Excellent. Well done. Don't worry if you didn't. That's fine. Um, the vision of the statue of Daniel 2 was a dream that God gave Nebuchadnezzar, and Daniel helped to interpret it. You might remember that. But we're going to look at Daniel chapter 8, and this is a dream that God gave Daniel, and it happens to be at the end of the Babylonian Empire. Right at the tail end, Belshazzar is just about to be um, uh, conquered. Babylon will be conquered by Medo-Persia in just a little while. In fact, we find at the, at the end of Daniel 8 is kind of when this whole thing happens, because between Daniel 8 and 9, um, Daniel has to deal with the transition of the kingdom, and he ends up being put as one of the, the um, head people, kind of the second in command in the Medo-Persian empire there in Babylon. And uh, so he's got some work to do in the meantime and, and has to pause things in trying to figure out what Daniel 8 is describing. So this is at the tail end of the Babylonian empire when we get to Daniel chapter 8, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared unto me, even unto me, Daniel, after that which appeared unto me at the first. Um, now, uh, in Daniel, well, let's just keep reading verse 3. I lifted up my eyes and saw, and behold, there stood before the river a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other and came up last. So, what do we know so far? A ram. A ram's what? An, an animal, right? It's, it's, a, it's not a goat, <laughs> but it has, it has these, you know, like the, the what are they called? The... the Big horn sheep, yeah, they go bouncing on the, the sides of mountains and stuff. So this is the kind of thing that he's seeing, a, a sheep, a ram, a male sheep with two horns. One of them, it says, is higher than the other, and that's significant. We need to keep a note of that. It also mentions the one that's higher ended up coming up after the, first, the, the other one. Okay, so um, let's keep reading. 
I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward uh, so that no beasts might stand before him. Neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. All right, so these are important indicators. The directions are something that we're supposed to pay attention to. Um, And interestingly, this horn, or this uh, sheep with two horns, it's a conquering sheep. Nothing can stand in its way. Do you remember back in in Daniel chapter 2 where you had Babylon that was like this great kingdom, a head of gold, and it said that a, a kingdom that was inferior to it would conquer it. You don't really think of a conquering lamb, do you? But this, this um, ram uh, ends up conquering, and it, and it goes in these different directions. What does it mean? Uh, let's think about this a little bit. Um, these two horns, they're uneven, and, uh, and there's something about them that's, uh, that's unique. One pushes up after the other. It moves westward and northward and southward to conquer. Um, what is this representative of? In, in Daniel chapter 2, we had a progression of kingdoms. In Daniel 8, we have the exact same progression of kingdoms, except we don't start with Babylon, because Babylon's already practically over. Um, so, who, what kingdom was right after Babylon? Medo-Persia. Now, should we go to, um, well, right there, <laughs> the ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. Did you advance that for me? I did that? Shame on me. That wasn't supposed to happen. (laughs) Okay, I was just going to ask, should we go to, say, the National Enquirer or YouTube to find the answer? And the answer is no. We should go to the Bible, and right here, this is Gabriel, just a few verses later, giving the explanation for what these represent. Um, So, sorry, I jumped the gun on that one, but when we want to understand the Bible, we ask the Bible what it means. That's the best, safest solution. Let the Bible explain itself. Okay, so the ram is Medo-Persia, and uh, interestingly, when you look at what happens with Medo-Persia, the exact same progression is happening um, with Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia is one kingdom, That's the ram. And you'll find this is a pretty consistent in Bible prophecy. An animal, a beast, is connected to a kingdom. Uh, There's a few situations where it's not, like in Revelation 4 and 5, the lamb is representative of Jesus. But a beast, um, and specifically in this progression that we're describing here in Daniel 8 or Daniel 7 and some in Revelation 13 and 14, or 12 and 13, um, you'll find these beasts are representing nations. But not only is a beast representative of a nation, but the horns represent a kingdom. So in this one, you have one beast, uh, empire of Medo-Persia, made up of two kingdoms, the Medes and the Persians. And the Medes begin this coalition government, and the Persians come in after them. But pretty soon, the Persians excel past the, the, the Medes and become more than half of the empire. And so they are higher than the other. Um, So this is, well, a representation, at least, of this dream. And it says that it pushes westward and northward and southward. And when you look at how Medo-Persia conquers the world, that's exactly what they do. They come from modern-day Iran, and they end up pushing westward in order to conquer Babylon. And they go to the south part and end up down there um, where the um, uh, Israel is, and they go kind of north and west and end up heading towards Greece, not quite, but um, getting close to Western Europe. But that's not all he saw. Um, If you keep reading, in verse 5, it says, And I was considering suddenly, and, and as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacking the ram and broke his two horns. This, this uh, ram, uh, goat attacks the ram. 
And there was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver him from his hand. So as Daniel is watching this ram, a goat comes from the west. And every time you see like directions or some detail, the Bible, it doesn't just randomly throw things out for just the fun of a story. Especially in prophecy, each kind of component has a significance. So it comes from the west. It has a notable horn. Um, it attacks and tramples down the ram that was before it. So who is this ghost? A goat, rather. If you had to guess, who's the goat? <laughs> Not a ghost. <laughs> now he's kind of a ghost, but Alexander the Great or Greece? Yes, um, and you don't even have to guess about this because Gabriel tells Daniel exactly what it is. The male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. And who is the first king of Greece that becomes the empire of Greece? It's Alexander the Great. And it says it's a notable horn. It's, it's a significant thing. And, and that's really quite true about Alexander the Great. He was extraordinary. Uh, he led a military uh, conflict that moved from Western Europe all the way east to the Indian Ocean. He, he ends up conquering an area of over 2 million square miles, 20 million subjects. Um, it was, and that's by the time he's 32. It was a huge thing. And of course, you knew that already because we talked about it in Daniel 2. But Daniel 8.8 continues, The male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it, four notable ones um, came up toward the four winds of heaven. So this is a, an additional piece of the story that Daniel 2 didn't tell us. It's an, an extra comparison. And uh, what happens with Greece? Well, um, it keeps going. It says, uh, as for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. So again, you've got an animal, that's the kingdom, but then you've got the horn that also represents some nuance of that kingdom. And uh, if you study a little bit of history, you'll find that Alexander the Great, he died shortly after conquering the world. He ends up coming back and in the ruins of Babylon, he camps there with his soldiers because they didn't really want to be going anymore. They were pretty tired. And uh, so he camps there and, uh, and he ends up dying, dies in his sleep. Some people think he died of cirrhosis of the liver or alcohol poisoning or something like this. And, uh, and so he never ends up making it back to Greece. In his absence, there's no son to take his place he can't pass on the kingdom to anybody. So there's a power struggle, and, and four generals end up taking the throne, and they kind of piece up, you know, divide up Greece into four parts. And you find them here. Um, towards the west, you, you see Cassander. Lysimachus is um, next to him. Towards the east, you have Seleu Seleucus. And then in the south, um, north part of Africa, you have Ptolemy. One horn that's one kingdom, one leader, turns into four horns, four leaders. And uh, it says that about them that it didn't have the strength of the first. And it's true because there was fighting and warring among the Greek empire ever after that. When uh, Alexander had unity, these four generals had at best a loose association with each other. But then it says a little bit more. It says, And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east. But before we keep going, I should ask this question. When it says out of one of them, what's the natural conclusion that we might come to? Out of one of the four horns, right? That's the, that seems like a logical thing. But, but notice previous, the previous verse where it says, um, And the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise. Oh, I'm sorry. One more verse back. Um, the large horn was broken. In its place, four notable ones came up towards the four winds of the earth. So we have two fours, two fours, both the four horns and the four winds. So when we get to this verse that says um, that out of one of them came a little horn, uh, we have to do a little bit of hunting. Um, and this is one of the, the challenges with the Bible. We need to read the whole Bible, but the Bible was written in a language that most of us don't read, Hebrew or Greek 
a little bit in Aramaic. But we have some really great tools. So Strong's Concordance or um, the Blue Letter Bible online will have lots of good, uh, good resources to figure this out. And if you look at the, the words out of one of them, uh, the gender, just like male and female, you know we have words that have a specific gender in, in English, but it's more so if you go to Spanish, you know, like la niña, that's a, a girl, la, the, girl. But it's, it's not the same if you have a boy. It's uh, el niño, right? Is that the right way of saying it? Um, it's the boy, but it's not la, it's el. And, and Hebrew has a similar idea. Gender connects the subject and the action. And in this case, the action is coming out and the subject is them, which happens to be a female gender. But when you look at the horns, they're a male gender. The winds, though, happen to be a female gender. It's a little tiny point, but it matters. It's not from Greece that we end up with the horn, but it's from one of the four winds of the world that we get this horn. And we'll come back to that subject another time. So we have this notable horn, we have the four horns, and then out of the winds comes this other little horn which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and toward the glorious land. Um, who comes up? What nation comes up after Greece? Rome. And, and Rome ends up conquering, um, and, and they go south, and they go east, and because Rome is in Italy, they end up going east, and also they go to the glorious land. What's the glorious land? You got, yeah, according to Daniel, Daniel's in Babylon, and he's, and he's like, oh, please let me go back to Jerusalem, the glorious land, the land of promise, the land that God gave us. And does Rome end up going to Jerusalem, to Israel? Absolutely. In fact, you find Rome in Jerusalem when Jesus is around. It's on a Roman cross that Jesus dies. It was the Romans. Um, and, and then you look in verses 9 to 12, and it says, um, let's read that last part. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. I wish we had more time to dig into this. Each little piece is significant, and, and each piece can be understood. They're, they're there in the Bible to understand, and I hope that you do a little digging on your own because it's, it's fun to explore these things. But we're going we're gonna to jump into more detail later when we explore Daniel chapter 7, and that'll help explain some of these, these nuances. But for, night, for tonight, we're kind of skipping over the surface because we're, we're ending somewhere. We wanna, we're we kind of are taking the direction that Daniel is taking us in, and we want to get to that end point. All right, so let's keep going. Um, he even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Who's the prince of the host? Now, s- some of you might have heard of the host as the little wafer that you might have in the, in the, um, the communion service or the Eucharist, right? The host. That's not what we're talking about. <laughs> Um, in, in the Bible, a host is an army, um, and it makes sense to you, I'm sure. Uh, there's a whole host of them. That's, that's not a, uh, an obscure idea to us. So, the prince of the host, we can connect this all over the place. Joshua chapter 5, Jesus appears to Joshua, and he says, are you for us or against us? Because he's dressed like a, like a soldier. And Jesus says, neither, but as captain of the Lord's armies or the Lord's host have I come. In Revelation 19, Jesus is said to be leading the armies of heaven, the hosts of heaven, in riding on a white horse. Isaiah calls Jesus the prince of peace. Daniel 9 says that he's Messiah the prince. Um, so when, when we look at this, um, the prince of, ho- of the host is Jesus. And what does he do? He exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. And, and did they do that to Jesus? Did they exalt themselves above Jesus? Absolutely. Rome crucified Jesus, put, himself, put themselves above Jesus. 
And then it says, because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Again, a description of Rome. Um, Lots of details that we can explore later, but um, for now, uh, let's keep going and let Gabriel continue and explain some things. In verse 23 and 25, he says, a king shall arise having fierce features who understand sinister schemes. He shall even rise against the prince of princes. Why didn't Gabriel just tell us that this is Rome? I mean, he said that one's going to be Medo-Persia and this one's going to be Greece. He said it in advance. Why? And Rome existed back in Babylon's time. Why is it that he didn't name Rome? Two powers? Well, I think that the, the reason, and this is speculation, but I think the reason might be that this book was going to be read by Christians. And who was it that persecuted the Christians? Rome. And they persecuted the Christians partly because Rome, or the Christians were, uh, well, it was under question whether they were actually faithful to Rome or not. People thought that they might be um, kind of going at cross purposes with Rome. And, and if the Christian church was let to, to continue, the Pax Romana would be destroyed. Can you imagine if they knew that the Bible, the book that the Christians were reading, predicted that Rome would be the adversary of God? Do you think they would have thought kindly about the Christians? I don't think they would have. And so I, I suspect that maybe God was with a bit of foresight, because he has that. He was trying to protect the Christians from additional persecution. But he gives us enough detail to help us understand that this is Rome. And it, and it tracks. You've got the ram, Medo-Persia, the goat, Greece, the breakup of Greece into four, and then the, this other horn that comes up um, and, and takes over in Greece's place. So let's just, let's just do this review. Babylon is not in, in Daniel 8 because Babylon's already over by the time Daniel, or pretty much over by the time Daniel 8 comes around. So Medo-Persia is the first thing that Daniel 8 describes, and it connects it not as silver, but as a ram. Um, the, the belly and thighs of brass are Greece, and Daniel 8 describes them as the, the, the goat with the notable horn that breaks up into four. And then the legs are, are Rome, uh, the next empire that comes after Greece. And uh, Daniel 8 describes that as this, this notable horn, this little horn that comes up. But then in, in Daniel 2, we have this divided um, Western Europe that comes after Rome. It kind of Rome breaks up into. And you notice that there's iron in the legs and iron in the feet. There's a continuity, though the feet are broken up. And, and when we look at Daniel 8, you don't see that same progression in the same way. This little horn that becomes great is a representation of all of that iron, all the way down to the toes. And, uh, and, and so we we have a continuity there between this little horn in Revelation 8 and both the legs and the feet. Um, let's go back to Daniel 8 because we're not done. Remember what happens after, after the legs and the feet and all that? What happens in Daniel 2? There, there's a, a big rock cut out without hands that comes and, well, there's kind of a judgment <laughs> because the entirety of all of the human empires are destroyed and turned to dust, and God sets up His kingdom. It's the second coming. It's the, the, end of, of, uh, the end of sin and evil and all of that stuff. That's what happens after the feat in, in Daniel 2. But in, in Revelation, or sorry, Daniel 8, when Daniel is describing this progression, their little horn is kind of connected with both Rome and the divided Western um, Europe, the next thing that happens is Daniel 8.14. And it says, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. That's different. It's not a metal. It's not a rock. It's not a, a beast. It's not a horn. It's, it's different. And that difference needs to kind of jar us and say, you, you got you to gotta pay attention here. 
there's something important that you need to look to. And, and there's a few things that it describes. One is this 2,300 days. That's literally 2,300 evenings and mornings. Now, for you and me, we get kind of the, the Roman perspective of days. It begins at midnight, ends at midnight. But the Jews, they had a evening-to-evening type of day. So their day began in, in the evening time, and it ended the following evening. And so the evening and the morning were one day. And we find that in Genesis 1. Um, God makes, the, God makes the, the light the first day, and it says, and the evening and the morning were the first day. And then he, he makes something the second day, the evening and the morning were the second day, the evening and the morning were the third day, etc. And so the Jews just kind of followed that pattern of tracking with the days. So when it says here, the evening, 2,300 evenings and mornings, it's talking about days, 2,300 days. Um, so what does that mean? What's the 2,300 days or evenings and mornings? Um, well, as the uh, other parts of the vision um, are answered by Gabriel, it seems like this should be answered by Gabriel too, right? He tells us what the ram and the goat is. He describes the horns. Like, it seems like he should tell us what this is about, right? Well, let's find out. Daniel 8, 26, and the vision of the evenings and mornings, which was told is true. Therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. And that's it. He doesn't answer the question. It's not very nice of him, um, but he's a nice guy. No, no, no offense to him, but um, we want to know what it means, and he leaves us hanging. And you and I might suggest, well, it's not that big of a deal. If Gabriel didn't interpret it for us, then it must not matter too much. And that would be fine, except Daniel is concerned. He says, I fainted and was sick certain days. Afterward, I rose up and did the king's business, and I was astonished at the vision, vision but no one understood it. Daniel wants to know what it means. He's, he's sick because he wants to know what it means. Did Daniel know what the ram represented? Yes, Gabriel told him. Did Daniel know what the goat represented? Yes, Gabriel told him. Did, did Daniel know what the, uh, the little horn represented? Well, he had lots of details at least. He might not have really connected it to Rome yet, but, but he, he had all the outline of information to find the answer. So what is it that he's concerned about? What's the only thing that is yet to be explained to Daniel? The evenings and the mornings. Um, so, when we look at this story, there's a few clues as to what this evenings and mornings thing is about. The first clue is Daniel 8:17. He says, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. And this is where we get the title of tonight's and tomorrow night's message, the time of the end. So, this 2,300 days or evenings and mornings refers to this time of the end period. And clue number two is in verse 19, where Gabriel says, it's for an appointed time, at, at the appointed time, rather, the end shall be. Okay, we're comparing Scripture with Scripture. Appointed time. Does the Bible ever talk about a time that's appointed? It does. Turn to Acts chapter 17, and you'll find this in verse 21. He has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. Did you catch that? The appointed time is a day of judgment. Uh, this is just one piece. We're going to connect it back to Daniel 8.14 again, uh, but it's the appointed time is a day of judgment. Do you think that the 2,300 days might have something to do with judgment? Let's... Um, the, the third clue comes right there from Daniel 8.14, and it says, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Now, the sanctuary is a subject that is super significant in the book of Revelation. You'll find sanctuary terminology all throughout the prophecies in, in Revelation and, and in Daniel. So, understanding the sanctuary is very helpful. And since Daniel 8.14 has brought it up, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you a picture and uh, give you a little bit of a tour of the sanctuary. Now, this is an um, artist rendition, obviously, but uh, the, the sanctuary that the, the Israelites built when they were in the wilderness, it's a mobile tent, and uh, they built it not, be, not just from their own imagination. They built it based on a, uh, a template that God had given them, blueprints that God had given Moses on the mountain. 
And you find that in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5. He said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So God gives him a blueprint. Here's how you do this. And I think the reason that God wants the Israelites to build this based on a specific pattern is because God wants to give a illustration, even a prophecy of what would happen and how this whole plan of salvation would work. And so it needs to be God's design since the whole salvation thing is God's doing. Um, So let me just take you on a little tour here. The first thing that you'd come to when you walk through the, the, into the courtyard, there's kind of this fence around the whole thing. When you walk into the courtyard, you'd come up to this altar of burnt offering. And it's on this altar that they, they would um, offer the sacrifice. And there's a lot of them, but many sacrifices were a lamb. And let me ask you, uh, what does the lamb that's sacrificed on this altar represent? Jesus, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, there not just was an um, altar of burnt offering in the outer courtyard, but there's another piece. It's called the laver. Before you get to the tent, there's this bowl with water that you can wash in. And uh, 1 Corinthians 6.11, Paul tells us, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. And in 1 John, sorry, yeah, 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse. That word is connected to washing. It's connected to water. And, and so we find this, uh, my bad, I moved it on farther than I wanted to. We find that this labor is tied to the, the cleansing that Jesus offers us when he forgives our sin. So then you go from the outer courtyard to the inside of this tent. And there are two rooms in the sanctuary, what's called the holy place, and then the other one is called the most holy or the holy of holies. And uh, the first thing that you'll see are these, these two things, the lampstand or the candlestick on your left and the table of showbread is what they call it on the right. And the lampstand, it was always supposed to be lit all the time. And you know what Jesus says about himself? I'm the light of the world. That's what Jesus claims to be. He's this lamp. And then on the other side with the table of showbread, there were supposed to be 12 um, loaves of bread, 12 kind of disks of bread, and one for each tribe of, of Israel. And you know what Jesus said when he came to this world? He said, I'm the bread of life. He claims to be the fulfillment of this sanctuary experience. Not only does he claim to be the fulfillment of the sanctuary um, experience, um, but he, he claims to also be the priest. Jesus says, nobody is going to take my life. I give it of myself freely. It wasn't like the, there was a priest that, you know, cut the, the lamb's throat. Um, Jesus did it himself. He's both the lamb and the priest. Um, and, and then you have right in front of the curtain that divides the holy from the most holy place, there's this other altar, and it's always supposed to be burning. And on that altar, they would have incense burning. And in um, Revelation 8, this, it, it talks about the prayers of the saints that are rising up to God. And, and also, Jesus says, or it's in Hebrews, but it says that Jesus ever lives like his whole ministry is to intercede on our behalf, and that's kind of what prayer is, an intercession. And so these, this altar represents the prayers of Jesus mingled with the prayers of, of His people. So when you pray, you're, you're doing what, what's there in the sanctuary in an illustration form. But we've got to move into the most holy place, because this is where it gets really fun. Um, in the most holy place, you have the Ark of the Covenant, how many of you have heard of the Ark of the Covenant before? How many of you watched uh, Indiana Jones? No. <laughs> um, there, there's a lot of legend about the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, but, but here's the thing. The Ark was intended to communicate something about God's plan. It in itself did not have magical powers. There was a time when the Israelites thought it did. And so they took the Ark out of the, the sanctuary and they put it on their, their shoulders and marched it into war, thinking that if they had the Ark, nobody could conquer Israel if they just had the ark. But the ark was just a piece of wood with a plate of gold on top of it and some angels fashioned from gold. It was just metal and wood. It was not God. 
and, and they failed to recognize that, this was a symbol. So the symbol represents the presence of God. Whenever they set up the sanctuary, um, the, the presence of God would descend in a pillar of cloud and pillar of fire over the top of the, the, um, the tabernacle, and inside it would light up with what the Bible calls the Shekinah glory. The glory of God would be right there. And so this represents the throne of God in heaven. Um, when the Bible talks about priests working in the temple, it says that they serve the copy and shadow of heavenly things. These are, are priests that are trying to kind of act out what God is doing in heaven, uh, kind of playing the role of Jesus. But every single part of that sanctuary experience represented Jesus. Even the veil that separated the holy place and the veil that, prevent, or that, that uh, separated the outside from the inside of that tent and, and the doorway from the outside courtyard into the inner courtyard, all of those things Jesus says represented himself. Jesus was the door to get to God. If you want to get to the Father, you come, you come through me. That was Jesus' statement. So if you understand this, if you understand that the earthly sanctuary uh, is a copy or a representation of what's happening in heaven, then lots of other things in Revelation and in prophecy make sense. For example, in Revelation eleven nineteen, it says, then the temple of God was open in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. There's a ark of the covenant in heaven. There's a copy on earth, or at least there was, but the original, the real deal was in heaven. Um, the sanctuary points, points to Jesus And more specifically, it points to what Jesus does for us, first of all on heaven, uh, on earth, and then also in heaven. Hebrews 8 verses 1 and 2 says, We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. What Jesus is doing in heaven for us is represented in the sanctuary. And then there's this verse, A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. It was the Israelites, Moses, who ends up pitching the tent there in, in, the, in the tabernacle in the wilderness. But God makes the tent in heaven. God makes the temple in heaven. And, and to be clear, this is not a, a, an exact replica. It was a mobile version. And then later they built a temple. But still, everything symbolized what Jesus was doing in heaven. So if you look in heaven, you're not going to see that but you're going to see the thing that that represents. So, when we look at the sanctuary, we have all these, we have all these emblems and implements and interesting uh, ceremonies. One of the things that we have to pay attention to are the feasts, and the feasts get really exciting. There are seven festivals that the Israelites are supposed to do each year. And each of the festivals, just like the, the different um, furniture in the sanctuary, points to something specific, and it's something in Jesus' life. So let's look at, at these festivals really quick. First is the Passover. This is a spring event, and the Passover is the time of year when Jesus died. It was a Passover that Jesus died on the cross. And so the Passover is pointing forward to this lamb that would take away the sin of the world. 1 Corinthians 5-7, Paul says, Jesus is our Passover. Then you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is really part of the Passover. It's the second day of the Passover, and, uh, and they, they have this, this feast, and it's really cool. But the thing about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, leaven represents sin. Uh, Jesus mentions to the, to the disciples uh, to beware of the leaven of the, the uh, priests or the Pharisees, right? Beware of the leaven. And in, in another place, it says that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Oh, you know, a little yeast will make the whole loaf rise. And, and so, Jesus is, in this, um, in this feast, it's representing that Jesus completely takes away the sin of the world. It's unleavened bread. No, not even a little bit. He completely deals with the problem of sin. But then, three days after the Passover was the feast of 
Well, it's the first fruits. And the first fruits is this opportunity where Israel gets to go in the spring and look out and say, oh, look, the first little bits of harvest. And they take the, the, the best stuff that they can find in the, the beginning of the harvest and they bring it and they give it to, the, to, to God at the, the tabernacle. And, and this is supposed to be a, a symbol of saying, um, we see that the, the, the first little bits of the harvest have come and we trust that you'll make the rest of the harvest come as well. And so Jesus, three days after the Passover, three days after his death, he is resurrected. And we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, that Jesus is the first fruits of them that slept. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we can be confident that the resurrection of the righteous will happen someday soon in the future. And so this, this uh, festival points again towards Jesus, the first fruits of the resurrection. Fifty days after the first fruits is the Feast of Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks. And this one's a really neat one because the Israelites, they come out of Egypt and they have the Passover experience and they go through the water of, of, the, um, of the Red Sea and then they wander in the wilderness for a bit, but they end up the 50th day after leaving Egypt, they end up at the base of the mountain of Sinai. And it's on this day that God speaks and he speaks a covenant and he speaks the Ten Commandments and it's exciting and it's thunderous. And, and well, th- this is kind of not in the Bible, but the Jewish stories said that when God spoke the Ten Commandments, He spoke in all the languages of man. And there were Hebrews there, and there were, you know, Israelites, and there were also Egyptians there. They called it a mixed multitude because some of the Egyptians didn't like the whole plagues thing and thought God was pretty awesome, and so they followed the Israelites out of Egypt. And so maybe, maybe it happened. We don't really know. But what we do know is that the Israelites in the disciples' day, 50 days after Jesus was resurrected from the grave, they would have known that story. And when they heard the disciples talking, and the disciples knew Greek and maybe Aramaic, but they heard them, the Bible says, in their native language, which means that, in a sense, God was speaking in all the languages of men at one time, telling them the gospel. It was this experience, the Pentecost experience, 50 days after Egypt, 50 days after the Passover, every year, they would point forward to this moment when God would speak and the gospel would go to the world. And then after uh, the Feast of Pentecost, there was the summer. And the summer, there was kind of nothing really happening in the, the festivals, but by the fall, you have this Feast of Trumpets. Now, the Feast of Trumpets is a solemn occasion. It's a call where they, every day they, they have this trumpet going from the temple, and, uh, and it was a call to repent. Repent and kind of make things ready, because in 10 days after the beginning of the Feast of Trumpets, you would have the Day of Atonement. And this is a solemn festival. It was a festival that they called the Judgment. Um, and it's a judgment because, for, for a couple reasons, but the big reason is that if you didn't repent, if you maintained an attitude of rebellion against God, then God said to take those people in rebellion and remove them from the camp. Just take them completely out of Israel and never let them come back. That's a kind of a harsh thing. But keep in mind, there is never, ever a reason to do this like that you'd be forced into this except for rebellion because there is every provision made in this context to make sure that you're covered by the lamb of Jesus. So it's not like everybody's kicked out if they, you know, if they sinned or something like that. The the sin is covered and forgiven and cleansed. That's how if you confess then he'll forgive and cleanse. And that, that whole system was right there in this Day of Atonement judgment experience. Um, but it was this Day of Judgment. And following judgment came the last feast of the year. And this was the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, as some people like to call it. And, uh, and this is the time, you know, God, is, He's led the Israelites through the wilderness. And so now that they're finally in Canaan, He says, celebrate this particular festival. I want you to remember the time that you lived in tents. And so they would make tents out of natural things. And, and in Revelation 21, verse 3, the Bible says that after the second coming, after the judgment happens, 
then there's this, this moment, and it says, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them. The promise of the Feast of Tabernacles is that God will dwell with us. God will make His home with us. So, when you look at this whole story, all seven of these beautiful feasts, you're looking at what Jesus did and what Jesus will do for mankind. It's a plan of salvation. And, and it represents the entire ministry of Christ from the time that He was on earth to the time that He was in heaven until the whole thing is over, until it's all settled and done. So, when we look back at this Daniel 8.14 thing, where, where it describes the, um, that, the, this hour of judgment and stuff, and it points to the sanctuary being cleansed, um, what we're seeing is the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, if you know those kind of uh, uh, Hebrew words for it. It was a day when the, the literal sanctuary would be cleansed. Every year they had this celebration, this festival, this solemn assembly, and it symbolically, well, let me, let me point out this. In the sanctuary service, every time a lamb was killed uh, for a sin offering, a little bit of that blood would be taken and sprinkled inside the sanctuary on horns of the altar, on the, the, um, the uh, veil that uh, connected the two uh, compartments. And that was a symbol that um, all the sin of mankind would be carried by Jesus. And, and then there's this other component, because the sanctuary, which is a heavenly a representation of what's happening in heaven, the sanctuary kind of held the sins of the people for a, a period of time. And, and can sin exist in the presence of God? No. So, the sanctuary has to be cleansed. It has to get out of the sanctuary somehow. And there's a whole story to that we're not going to get into. It's, it's really fun, uh, not fun, but interesting how the Bible describes this process of the sin going out of the sanctuary. But every year they did this cleansing. Now, if you want to understand what Daniel 8.14 means about cleansing the sanctuary, it's really good just to do a search, cleanse and sanctuary, and you'll end up back here in the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 27 to 29. And it goes like this, on the 10th day of the seventh month shall be the Day of Atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls, for any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. So, we have this issue of judgment, and then there's this cleansing that goes on in, in, uh, in this passage as well. And so, it seems like in Daniel 8, when we're talking about the cleansing of the sanctuary, and we're talking about an appointed time, it seems like we're talking about judgment. Um, and there's these three things. Time of the end as well is, is in there. At some point, there is an appointed time for judgment. It's at the end, and it'll deal with the cleansing of the sanctuary. We've been talking about a progression from Daniel 2 and Daniel 8. You go Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, the divided Europe, and then the kingdom of God comes. And, and there's this, in Daniel 8, this, this interesting kind of in-between moment. Right before the second coming and right after divided Europe, you end up with judgment. And it's not unique to Daniel 8. If you go to Daniel 7, you'll find that progression of uh, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, divided Europe, and then judgment. And you'll find it here in Daniel 7 verse 9. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Who's present here? We've got the Father, and we've got the hosts of angels, and there's this courtroom scene, and it says that the court was seated, and then the books were opened. Now, why does God need books? Doesn't He know everything? Is there any reason for God to have books? My suggestion here is that God has books because He has other interested parties in this story. 
The angels that are all around him in Daniel 7 are, are not, they're, they're not as intelligent as God because no created being can be. They don't know everything, and they, they, they don't have a perfect understanding of this whole salvation thing. In fact, the Bible says that, that these are things which angels desire to look into. They're curious about. They want to understand. And in 1 Corinthians 4, 9, Paul says, for we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. The angels want to know, and you, you'd want to know too, because uh, there was a time when the, the evil angels were in heaven, and then they got kicked out. And if God kicked out the evil angels, why is He about to let us in? It's a question that, that they would really like to have answered. And so God has these books, and it's like He's saying in this experience, this judgment, He's saying, all right, here's the evidence. Here's how I'm making all of my decisions. Take a look. I'm not afraid of anything. Examine the evidence. I'm convinced you're going to see exactly what I came to conclude. It's, a, it's God opening the books for the universe to see. Now, you know what this means for you and me. It means that you and I will come up in the judgment and that's not good news. You know that's not good news. If you look at your life and you, you see other people or angels or whoever is going to end up looking at your life experience, it's a concerning thing. But, but here's the good news. Well, before, before I go there, I would just want to point, point out that the Bible is pretty clear that we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 9.10. And then in Romans 14.10, for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. How many? All. Uh, some might say that it's just the wicked that will be judged, but uh, not all judgment ends up bad, right? Sometimes you, you end up, what's the word when you don't get, uh, you don't get condemned? You, acquitted, is that the right word? Well, you end up, the judgment ends up being good. And in fact, in Daniel 7, the Bible says that judgment was made in favor of the saints. So everybody ends up in front of the judgment seat, including the righteous, the, those that have chosen uh, to follow Jesus. And here in Ecclesiastes, for God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. So this is the bad news. The bad news is your name and my name are coming up in front of the judgment. But the good news is this, Jesus is the judge. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, according to John 5. And, and when you think about Jesus being the judge, if Jesus is the one who gave His life to save us, and He ends up being the one that judges us, do you think we're in good hands? I think we're in good hands. But there's more good news. Not only is Jesus the judge, but He's also your lawyer, your defense attorney. It says that in 1 John 2, 1, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. That's another way of saying defense attorney, an advocate, somebody who will plead our case in front of the throne. Think about this. If the judge and the attorney and the one who gave his life to save you is the one in charge of the judgment. Do you have anything to be worried about? Not as long as you ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. You just don't have anything to, to, to stress about. Hmm. Is God trying to tell us something about the judgment, do you think, in Daniel 8? Do you think Daniel 8 might be pointing in that direction? I, I think so. There's a warning, judgment begins, Jesus comes. This is kind of the pattern that we see there. And, and sometime just before He comes, the judgment begins and the world will know that it has started. And we find this in Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7. He says, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, uh, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment and what's that word? It already has come. The hour of His judgment has come. Not will come, but has come. At some point, just before Jesus' return, that judgment is already underway. It's an appointed time that the Bible predicts in prophecy. And it's in Daniel, it's in Revelation. You see this judgment theme come up 
over and over again. But the question is, if there's an appointed time and if Daniel has this time period in it, uh, when is the judgment? That's a good question, right? I'll show you tomorrow night. You have to come back for that. (laughs) But for tonight, I want to ask you this. Why would you want to face God's throne, God's judgment without Jesus? What would be the point of standing up there by yourself and defending yourself? We don't have anything to defend, do we? But with Jesus, our case is as good as settled. He is our Passover lamb who gave his life to make sure you and I can make it. What could possibly keep you from choosing Jesus? Let's pray. Father in heaven, it's amazing how you told us the story of Jesus before he was ever born. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and tonight we know that Jesus is our only hope. So right now, in this quiet moment, I just want to invite uh, anybody who would like to say yes to Jesus to raise their hand and to say, yes, Lord, we believe. We want Jesus. We choose him to represent us in the judgment. Lord, I know that as hands go up in this, in this room that you can see them, and so can the angels. And for these people, there are no more questions. They're covered by the blood of Christ. And when he comes, he'll come for these precious people. We give you the honor and the glory of what you have done for us. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.